Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club program, a forum on judicial independence and the public good. I'm Ladaris Cordell, a retired Superior Court judge, and I'm your moderator. In 1776, the Continental Congress penned its 27 grievances against King George II in the Declaration of Independence. And one of those grievances addressed the dependency of the judiciary. Quote, he has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and amount and payment of their salaries. More than 240 years later, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg eloquently extolled the virtues of an independent judiciary. Judicial independence in the United States strengthens ordered liberty, domestic tranquility, the rule of law, and democratic ideals. She continued, at least in our political culture, it has proved superior to any alternative form of discharging the judicial function that has ever been tried or conceived. It would be folly to squander this priceless constitutional gift to placate the clamors of benighted political partisans. Yet today, the principle of judicial independence is largely ignored, misunderstood, or not understood at all by many Americans. And for some, it's code for judges circling the wagons. For others, it means judges are not being held accountable. For judges, it is neither. This evening, we tackle what has incredibly become a controversial topic, judicial independence. In California, a state with 40 million people who live in 58 counties with seven Supreme Court justices, 102 courts of appeals justices, and 1,535 superior court or trial judges, what does judicial independence mean? To answer these questions and others from you in the audience, we have three knowledgeable panelists a California state court judge, a constitutional law scholar, and a legal affairs reporter. Judge Curtis Carno has been a judge of the San Francisco County Superior Court since 2005, where his judicial assignments have included complex litigation and presiding judge of the appellate division. Judge Carno has served on the steering committee of the Chief Justice of California's your Constitution, the Power of Democracy, and on the Judicial Council's Leadership Group on Civics, Education, and Public Outreach. Judge Carno has written on judicial ethics for the California Judges Association and is a frequent contributor to legal news, law review, and bar association publications. Mara Dolan is the California-based legal (laughs) affairs writer for the Los Angeles Times. She covers the California Supreme Court and the United States Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. A California native, she has worked in Washington and Los Angeles for the Times and is now based in San Francisco. Since 
2017, Erwin Chemerinsky has served as dean of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. He was previously founding dean and distinguished professor of law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, with a joint appointment in political science. Dean Chemerinsky is the author of more than 200 law review articles and 11 books. In 2017, National Jurist Magazine again named him as the most influential person in legal education in the United States. Please welcome our panelists. So we're going to start off our conversation, and, and please do write questions as they come to you, and we'll try to do our best to incorporate them into this conversation. Uh, I'm going to start off with you, Judge Carno. Uh, let's start off with the basics. Um, would you please describe the structure of the California judiciary? Tell us how one gets to be a judge and how long judges serve. Well, just to set the table, uh, I want to distinguish between the California judiciary and the federal system. And I really, it's important, I think, throughout the evening that we recall the difference between how judges get their jobs and how judges can lose their jobs, which are two very different sorts of uh, situations. In the federal system, uh, the president uh, nominates a judge, whether it's the trial, appellate, or the Supreme Court level, and the Senate confirms. With respect to trial judges, typically the senators of the state usually will have a lot of say in who that person is going to be. It depends on the relationship between the president and the senators and their respective parties. On the appellate court, for us, it would be the Ninth Circuit governing uh, the western part of the United States. Uh, the White House would have more influence, perhaps, and then at the Supreme Court level, the White House will have a tremendous amount of influence and really uh, will have the say as to who gets nominated to the Supreme Court. Federal judges can only lose their job by dying or uh, being impeached. They have life tenure. When the Constitution was adopted um, in uh, 1787, Article 3 of the United States Constitution gives federal judges life tenure. And uh, one of the things that I'll be emphasizing as the night goes on is that that's really probably the only way you can actually guarantee the independence of the judiciary is with life tenure. Anything else is a compromise. It may be a wise compromise. It might be something states want to do. But it is a compromise, and the federal system is life tenure. With respect to uh, California, uh, I should back up and just say states throughout the United States have a wide variety of ways of picking their judges. Uh, some are picked by the legislature, the governor, some are elected. In California today, we really have uh, two systems. We have a system at the trial court level where judges are typically nominated by the uh, governor, selected by the governor to fill out an expired term or an unexpired term or somebody who's died or perhaps been elevated to court of appeal. And by and large, most trial judges in California uh, are selected by the governor of the state. Then, within six years, they have to stand for re-election. Somebody can challenge them, and we'll get to that later on uh, tonight as well. Uh, and if they succeed uh, defeating the challenge, if there is one, then they serve another six-year term. So there are elections, possibly, every six years for a trial judge. For the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, it's a completely different system. There, the uh, governor uh, will appoint the justices of the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. They have 12-year terms, and during those terms, uh, at the end of those terms, no one can challenge them, but they are up for a retention election. So it is conceivable that 
uh, if they don't get 50% of the vote, that they could lose their job at the end of that uh, term. And if that happens, the governor would then appoint a replacement. And uh, in California, we had a history. Uh, Rose Byrd and two of her associate justices on the Supreme Court in the last century were uh, removed from the Supreme Court because they failed in their retention election to get 50%. And the then Governor Duke Majin uh, appointed replacements uh, to take their term. So it's a very different sort of situation. California, we also have the ability to recall. Uh, and we're going to be talking about recall elections later on uh, in this evening. But uh, the basic rule is that at any time, uh, if 20% of the prior electorate uh, succeeds, uh, is signs a, a ballot petition, then at the next election, the judge can be removed from office on a recall for any reason, as long as over 50% of the voters right. decide uh, to do that. Finally, I want to mention the role of open seats. Uh, this year, for example, uh, in San Francisco Superior Court, we have three open seats. They're going to be subject to an election in March. And that's because the uh, judges who uh, held those seats uh, had uh, decided to uh, stagger the announcement that they're not going to retain their seats, that they're not going to file papers within a certain window. And that opens the seats uh, for anybody to run for. So those are not elections in which an incumbent judge is attacked or challenged, but simply lawyers who wish to vie for an open seat uh, will then go to the election and uh, contest that open seat. So that's a basic outline of how we do it. And in California, if you would like to become a judge, you've never been one, uh, you have to have been a lawyer for a minimum of 10 years. 10 years. And by the way, when I pose a question to one of you, if another one wants to jump in and add something, feel free to do it. Okay, this is a conversation. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Judge. Um, State court judges can lose their jobs in a number of ways. Retirement, uh, losing a contested election, losing a retention election, um, and or being recalled. So we're going to talk in a bit about judicial elections and their impact on judicial independence. But first, Let's take a look at the recall of judges. So this is a question I posed to our dean. So Dean Chemerinsky, in June 2018, uh, Judge Aaron Persky, a Superior Court judge in Santa Clara County, was removed from the bench in a recall election. And this was the first recall of a California judge in more than 80 years. Outrage over the judges, and I put in quotes, lenient, Uh, sentencing of a Stanford swimmer to a six months in jail after he'd been convicted by a jury of the sexual assault of an intoxicated and unconscious female led to calls for his removal. You, Dean Chemerinsky, were one of the voices of opposition to the recall. Um, Why did you oppose the recall and, and what did judicial independence have to do with it? And what exactly is judicial independence? Let me start with the last question. I think judicial independence, the idea that a judge should decide a case solely based on his or her views of the laws and the facts. If a judge is deciding a case based on anything else, we've lost judicial independence. So if a judge is deciding a case to please the voters or to please the governor or to please constituents who will give money to the campaign or to please the president of the United States, we've lost judicial independence. There is, as Judge Carno said, inherent tension between election of judges and judicial independence. The fear always is that the judge isn't going to decide the case based on the law and the facts, but to please the voters at the next election. Being a judge is a very desirable and prestigious position in our society. People who attain it generally want to keep that role. 
Otto Kaus served on the California Supreme Court with great distinction for many years. And he said, the problem with judicial elections is it's like having a crocodile in your bathtub. You never can forget it's there. Well, the more likely it is that a judge can be subjected to a recall or voted out of office because of a particular decision, the more that the judge is going to be afraid of doing something that's going to anger the voters, the more the judge is going to be afraid of a decision that could lead to a recall or lead to the person losing the next election. And we have plenty of examples in this state and around the country of judges who handed down controversial rulings and then lost their positions. The Iowa Supreme Court unanimously ruled that it violated the Iowa Constitution to keep gays and lesbians from marrying. At the next election, three of those Iowa Supreme Court justices lost their positions. Well, now we can get to your questions about Judge Persky. Judge Persky handed down, I think, too lenient a sentence with regard to Brock Turner. Now, the facts of the case are more complicated than the media has often made it seem, but I still believe that six months in jail and a three-year probation wasn't enough. But the appropriate response for judges' decisions, we don't like them, is to appeal. The state can appeal a judge's sentence and could have said that it was an abuse of his discretion. But I don't think the appropriate response should be to remove him from the bench because it then sends a message to all judges that if they hand down a sentence that's too lenient, they could face that kind of a recall. And what happened to Judge Persky was a smear campaign. Many false and untrue things were said about him. He was attributed with handing down decisions where he wasn't even part of the case as a judge. And I worry that it's a one-way ratchet. No judge is going to be voted out of office for handing down too draconian a sentence. I handled a case in the Ninth Circuit in the Supreme Court where a man got sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 50 years for stealing $153 with the videotapes. I've never heard of a judge being targeted for recall for a sentence like that. But judges would have to fear if their sentence is later perceived as too liberal, too lenient, then they can be subjected to a recall. And 60% of the voters voted to oust Judge Persky just based on this one decision. And to me, that's a huge threat to judicial independence. So, and I know you can jump in if you want, but full disclosure, I was one of the voices also against the recall. And, and I do disagree with you with all due respect, Dean Chemerinsky. I don't believe that the sentence was too lenient. I think it was entirely appropriate given the facts of that case. But that, that's really not the issue, is it? I mean, as long as the judge behaves lawfully, um, my view is that, you know, that as long as the judge is doing his or her job, then that judge, the judge deserves to be on the bench, at least not to be recalled. I don't know how you all feel about that. Do you have any thoughts about the recall? Well, it's very rare that it happens. As this is the first judge since Rose Bird, right? Actually, since the 1930s. Rose Bird and Joe Grosin, Grosin and Cruzanoso were denied retention, retention in 1986. Right, right, right. But I think the prior recall was in 1932. 1932. But still, it is very rare that it happens in this state. But it does affect other judges, we believe, and affects how they rule. Do you remember the ghost ship fire uh, they had reached a plea bargain in that case with the sort of a lesser defendant getting four years, I believe, and the family, the victims, went before a judge who had not been part of this, had not been handling the case before, and 
he threw, threw out the plea bargain and said, no, it's going to trial. And that judge, I mean, I heard several comments from the lawyer, oh, he's been persecuted because the public will think it's too lenient. And, of course, it went to trial. The lesser defendant got off, was acquitted completely, and uh, it was a hung verdict on the more serious case. I was surprised that the... Me- I thought the national media covered Persky quite well, covered the case well. I think locally it became so incredibly emotional. There were lawn signs everywhere. It became sort of a referendum on sexual assault. And I think a lot of people really did not know the facts of the case, did not understand exactly what had happened in that case. In fact, I knew somebody who had agreed to work for the recall and until actually met Ladora somewhere and discovered her understanding of what had happened was wrong. And she ended up doing it. And also the leader of that recall, this professor at Stanford, is an extremely aggressive person. person who went across the country and social media and all her backers to get support, <laughs> members of Congress, people who have nothing to do with California were weighing in. It, it, was, it had a life of its own. Well, that brings up something else then. So reporters like you base <laughs> your reporting on facts, right? You get right. facts and you write about them. So How were you and others in your profession able to determine the facts? I'm talking about the recall. When you had pro-recall, no recall, pointing fingers, accusing the other of lying. Um, So on a scale of 1 to 10, how, how do you rate the fairness or objectivity of the media coverage of the recall? Well, again, I think the national coverage was pretty fair. The local coverage, I think... I did not study it, but I think it probably was influenced by emotion. And uh, I remember I interviewed people on both sides. I talked to the anti-recall people and Michelle Dauber, who was running, and looked at all the cases. And at the end, I decided not to even bother mentioning these previous cases because First of all, they were not an indictment of Persky at all. And there's so much gray area in all of this. I mean, I just wrote actually about judicial independence and a woman at Stanford who decided not to take a position in this case, but said every trial judges have all the incentive in, a, in the world to be tough. Nobody's going to get thrown out of office for being too tough. And you don't send a message like this. This is not, you know, she absolutely hated his sentence, Brock Turner's sentence, but was against recalling a judge because of the message it would send. And I think it did send a message. I mean, you're on the trial court. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to realize that uh, the fact that this was once in many, many years is not a measure of the impact that it has on the judiciary. Every judge knows exactly what happened in that case. Every judge in San Francisco and throughout the state understands what happened in that case and um, the risks that people take. Now, the people I know are still going to have the courage to do what they need to get done, uh, but it did send a message uh, throughout the state. And uh, Dalbert, who was conducting the, the recall campaign, said not to worry, not to be concerned. It's not going to have any impact anywhere else. This is not setting any kind of a precedent which is not completely true. 
it's not her fault, but it's not completely true in the sense that people have picked this up in other places around the state, Contra Costa and in other places as well, where they have invoked the Persky situation, and they have then demanded recalls of their judges, mostly in family court and, again, very emotional sorts of situations where they're upset about judges' decisions about how to handle family sorts of situations. Uh, but this has been picked up and echoed and there have been campaigns in other places as well since that, since that recall. Right. So I, I want to ask a question of, of Dean Chemerinsky, because you've talked about judicial independence. I absolutely agree with your take on what that principle is and what it stands for. Uh, so the San Jose Mercury News, during the recall election, uh, the editorial board uh, wrote an editorial. Either they were going to support the recall or not support it. So they came out in support of the recall. This is the newspaper, and it's a big newspaper for Silicon Valley. So I'm going to just read you one paragraph from the editorial, and for the life of me, I don't understand it, and I'm trusting because you know so much you can explain this to us, all right? <laughs> so here is the paragraph, and again, this is from an editorial uh, May 8th, 2018, of the paper in supporting the recall. The argument that recalling Persky will strike a blow against judicial independence is not compelling. That ship already has sailed. The recall campaign and the surging Me Too movement have put judges across California on notice. Take sexual assault more seriously or risk being perskied. So I, I do not understand truly what does it mean with regard to judicial independence. That ship has sailed. I assume that what they're saying is the mere fact that Persky was subjected to a recall effort is enough to discourage judges from following the law and the facts and doing sentences that will better please the voters. I actually think it's wrong and it's internally contradictory what they've written. Had Persky prevailed, had the recall failed, that would have sent a real message too. That message would have been that voters of the state of California understand judicial independence and recognize its crucial importance. But Persky losing, and 60% of the voters voting for the recall sends exactly the opposite message to judges. It sends the message to judges that voters don't understand and appreciate judicial independence. It's just too abstract a concept to matter when there's the emotions as there was surrounding Persky. And the result of that is exactly as what Judge Carnot says. Judges around the state know now that if they're too lenient in any case, they can face losing their job. So let's talk about judicial independence as it pertains to judicial elections, money, and the power of social media. Uh, so Judge Carnot, uh, let's start off. Can you give us just a brief history of judicial elections in California. What's it all about? Well, very, very briefly, uh, California becomes a state in 1850. And at that point, in the Constitution that was drafted the year before, everybody was elected. All the judges were elected. Uh, there were four and six-year terms, depending on where you were uh, in the hierarchy. But, um, and this was a function of the, Jack, the remnants of Jacksonian democracy that were really flooding the country at the time. And I think most of the states, most of the states that became states thereafter had a model somewhat like that in the sense that elections were, uh, were, the, way to, were the way to go. But in the, 19, in the early 1900s, people were afraid that party politics 
uh, and partisan politics, and we're going to come back to this, uh, were really dominating the scene. The judicial system was seen as just another sort of branch of party politics in the state, and so they had uh, some amendments uh, in uh, 1911 uh, that, uh, that allowed uh, people to, be, uh, to run without a party endorsement. Uh, that went on for a while. Uh, still, people were seen as spending, judges were uh, seen as spending too much time uh, campaigning, raising money, uh, getting endorsements, currying favor with party bosses. Remember that phrase later on this evening. Uh, and there was a counter-revolution. And by the time 1934 rolls around, there's a ballot measure. And the ballot measure was in two parts. Each part was the same, except they pertained to different courts. The first part was the appellate and the Supreme Court. And there, the proposition was going to be that the judges would be appointed by the governor and would just have to stand for retention uh, every 12 years. The system that, in fact, passed for the appellate and the Supreme Court of California. For trial judges, exactly the same process was suggested, except for six-year terms. But trial judges, every six years, would simply be subject to uh, being retained just the same way the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals was. But the two ballot measures were in different places on the ballot. The first, for the appellate courts, was up front, next to some very popular other measures, it passed. The trial court proposition, almost identical wording, was at the bottom of the ballot, next to a very unpopular criminal justice reform measure that nobody liked. It failed. And so trial judges today are subject to this uh, different system, and uh, we have it uh, the, way, the, the way we have now, which is trial judges can be challenged uh, every six years. And that's just a short sort of history of how we got to where we are today. Okay, so Dean Chemerinsky, judges in every state have to abide by canons or principles that govern their conduct. Uh, when judges violate these canons, they can be disciplined by oversight agencies. In California, it's the Commission on Judicial Performance. Now, some of the canons, um, and I think this is true almost every state, they place restrictions on what judges can say when they and or their decisions come under attack. Uh, to put it simply, um, judges, when attacked, have no right of self-defense. Um, so should judges have the right to speak out and defend themselves when their reputations, their track records are attacked? Doesn't the First Amendment apply to judges? Uh, can surrogates be effective stand-ins for judges? And isn't judicial independence threatened by judicial silence? Lots of questions Lots there. of questions. <laughs> uh, I guess I'd say to all of them, yes. Now let me try to unpackage that. Um, Judges are not allowed to speak about the rulings off the bench. It's thought that whatever opinion that a judge issues, that's his or her speech on the subject. I would change that. I would allow judges to be able to speak out. I agree with you. I think judges should have First Amendment rights too. That said, I don't think that a judge defending his or her own ruling is likely to be the best advocate for it. I think none of us are likely to be the best advocates for ourselves. I think having others speak for us is much more likely to be effective. And so I think having so-called surrogates is much better than having the judge be the one who's there. So let's take the Aaron Persky example since we're focusing on it so much. I don't think anything that Judge Persky could have said in defense of his sentence would have made any difference in the election. 
But I think if surrogates had been out there and done a better job of explaining it, then perhaps it would have made a difference. Interesting. My, my experience was, was different. I was a surrogate during that recall, and I felt that I that Judge Percy could have been more effective. Uh, because I think there's a tendency, just for folks who aren't involved in the legal system, to say, if you're attacked, why don't you speak up and defend yourself? And if you don't, well, then, hey, you know, maybe there's some truth to it. So that's, that's one you know, problem I have with that. There, there is a, I should note, there's a pending uh, uh, proposal before the Supreme Court of California, which is to amend the canons of judicial ethics that would otherwise bar judges from discussing their own uh, opinions in the election context. It would permit judges to do so. The commentary that goes along with it, though, is uh, very similar to what Dean Chemerovsky has suggested, which is it's, it may not be a great idea. It may be that others talking about it will be more effective. But the Supreme Court of California at some point will be deciding whether or not to allow judges to defend their own opinions in the election context specifically. We'll see what, what the court does. I mean, the whole idea behind that canon is the canons that say judges are to be quiet. It's basically when cases you've decided, judges have decided, are still pending. Pending, right. With right. So, so when uh, the judge had already sentenced Brock Turner, you think, well, okay, why can't he speak about it? Well, the case was still pending because Brock Turner was on probation. And as long as he was on probation, the case was still pending. So therefore, he could not speak out about it. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Um, so let's just take this a little further, okay? Uh, Judge, Judge Carno, you and three of your colleagues on the Superior Court in San Francisco recently faced a challenge to your seats on the bench. And it was from a very unlikely source. Um, so what happened and why? Why? Why, why, why? <laughs> <clears throat> you know, we never figured it out. Uh, there are a lot of rumors, none of which I'll distinguish by mentioning them, uh, as to what happened. Um, I can tell you what our challengers said. There were four public defenders in San Francisco who challenged four sitting uh, Superior Court judges in but San Francisco. This was not a recall. This was, this was not a recall. Our six-year term was up. It, we were perfectly, it was perfectly legitimate uh, maneuver in the sense that uh, anybody could challenge us, and they took the opportunity uh, to do so. I don't think any one of us at the time was actually doing any criminal work at all. So no one understood what was happening or why. When you say no one was doing any criminal work, you Well, mean judges in San Francisco and in many other counties will specialize at least for a year or, or more in a particular area. And the four of us, I think at the time, if I remember correctly, were all doing civil work. That is not criminal work, where the public defenders might have had mm -hmm. some opinions that we were terrible or bad or something like that. And indeed, when they ran... Uh, there was no suggestion that any of the four of the judges who they uh, challenged had done anything wrong. Instead, what it was um, was a direct partisan attack. What happened was they decided that the best way to conduct this election would be to, to point out the fact that the four of us had been appointed by different Republican governors. 
And they uh, decided that this would be a way, they said publicly, to get back at Trump. Remember, this is San Francisco we're talking about. Yeah. So to get back at Trump and to equalize out and fight his appointment of judges on the federal bench, the people of San Francisco should vote uh, against us, who were appointed by Republican uh, governors. Uh, they, their website had something like Democratic Judges in the website, and their, one of their slogans was, defeat incumbent judges appointed by Republican governor to send a message to Trump. Now, none of us was a Republican. Um, three of us were Democrats, and by the time uh, we got to the DCCC, the Democratic Committee, uh, all four of us were uh, Democrats. I've been... <laughs> I, I've been a lifelong Democrat, probably seen on the more liberal side of the scale. So we were baffled, but this was the approach uh, that was taken. Uh, it turned out, ironically, we were endorsed by, uh, I think for the first time, the governor of the state, uh, Jerry Brown, uh, and virtually every other Democratic uh, politician uh, that, was, uh, uh, that we contacted, the state senators, federal senators, assembly people, so on and so forth. Judge, when did this happen now? Pardon me, this is, this, is, this is last year, 2018. So the election being handled in, uh, in June of 2018 and the election going on for four, or the campaign going on for the four months before that. So the, the attack against us was that maybe later on when it came out that we were actually Democrats, um, that we weren't the right kind of Democrats. And so this was the tenor of the political campaign. It was a purely partisan attack on the campaign. And let me just give you a few flavors, a few highlights of what that campaign was like and some of the really um, concerning things that we had to go through uh, because we were being challenged and because it was so political and it was so partisan. We spent all of our time getting endorsements and getting money. That was it. We're dialing for dollars morning, before work, at night, and on weekends. And we're putting everything that we can into getting endorsements. People don't understand or know who the judges are. There's a lot of ignorance about who judges are, so nobody knows who to vote for. So our consultants told us that we need to get proxies. People will vote for us if we get the right endorsements. So, so you had to hire had, consultants. We had consultants. We hired lawyers. We spent over $600,000 on this campaign, which money that could have been spent on something else. Uh, so we got these endorsements, and as we got these endorsements, people wanted to know what we would do for them. <laughs> this was politics. What will you do for me? Uh, we, the animal rights, let me read you a couple of quotes. The animal rights people, have you ever donated to any animal welfare organizations? Will you commit to taking a tour of the local animal shelter? Union, have you ever decided a union question? Did you ever rule on an issue affecting unions? If adverse, please explain. So in every one of these cases, people wanted to know what we had done for them and what we would promise to do for them if, uh, if, uh, if elected. When we got back and said, it's, we can't do that, this is political, uh, this is a, we're judges, we can't promise what we're going to do, judicial independence, it all fell flat. We were accused of being weak and indecisive and unable to answer the questions. We appeared at the political clubs throughout the city of San Francisco. You have 120 seconds to present your position on who you are, who they are, how the system works, what judicial independence is, and why they should vote for you. After 120 seconds, you get shouted down and you have to sit, and it's over. And we're on the same podium as candidates for mayor, supervisor, and other political uh, groups. 
And of course, we're on the same ballot as all of these people. So it's understandable that everybody in the audience thinks that we are politicians. That's how it feels, and that's how it looks. We had to get the endorsement. We wanted to get the endorsement of the DCCC, the Democratic uh, Committee in San Francisco. It's not essential. You can win without it, but it sure helps. And to do that, we had to meet with each one of them and try to get their endorsement. Uh, Most of them had already made up their mind long before they met us based on political considerations, which is understandable because they are politicians. And the idea that our merit or or non-merit would have any factor uh, was really uh, not part of the discussions. They were all very polite and courteous, but their decisions as to who to endorse and who not to endorse uh, was made on purely political grounds. In the end, we all made it through the DCCC, and we were grateful for this endorsement. Remember who the DCCC is. These are the party bosses, right? The 1934 ballot measures were designed to avoid judges having to go to the party bosses for endorsement. But being challenged in San Francisco... Overly, uh, which is overwhelmingly democratic, as I am, it's a very good idea to go to the party bosses, to curry favor with them, and to try to get their endorsement. Finally, money, uh, but we're going to get to that later on. The raising of money and who we had to raise it from, lawyers, the people who appear in front of us, is something I think we'll get you, to. You maybe. can talk about it now. I'll go right ahead. Money. <laughs> <laughs> the mother's milk of politics, Jesse Unruh who was a great California politician. Senator Mitch McConnell, who, whatever you think about him, is an extremely successful and wily politician, says, you know why we all go for money, why we want money? It's because he who has the most money usually wins. So we needed money uh, for all of the work, our consultants, the the politics, all the things that that you have to do in an election. The way you get money is you, you get it from the people who care. And the only people who really care about the, who the judges are going to be are the lawyers who appear in front of them. So there's an exception to the canons of ethics, right? Usually judges cannot ask for a favor or receive money from the people who appear in front of them. But this is a campaign, and the rules are a little bit different. So we were getting money from all of the lawyers who in the future, next week, next month, next year, might, might appear in front of us. We had lawyer, uh, lawyers and firms who had uh, campaign contributions. Uh, they put on shows for us. In other words, they had receptions at their law firms and funneled the money to us. Uh, and as we were told by our consultants, we would, tr- we would try to take proxies. We would try to have our friends or colleagues make these phone calls for us so that we could be a little insulated from it. That would work up to a point. But as our consultants told us, they need you for the closure. We've got it set up. Kurt, you need to call that law firm and close the deal so they know that you personally want the money from them. That's politics. That's how it That's what politics means. And if you're going to have judges running uh, in this way, then that's what they're going to be doing. Let me just finish uh, by talking about the impact on lawyers. Now, this may be very obvious, but I'll just say it anyways. When you have these campaign contributions, you have to disclose them. It's part of the rules, and you understand why. Transparency, who gave money, how much, and so on and so forth. How do we do that? The way we do that is we put the list outside the courtroom door long list of names and dollar money, dollar sums, right outside the courtroom door, page after page after page. Now our group, the four of us, 
got money from throughout the entire legal community in San Francisco. We didn't get it from a certain section, so there was that sort of problem that was avoided. But we got it from hundreds, if not thousands, of lawyers from, all of, from across the city. So you have this list. What message does that send to you, the lawyer, if you haven't given money to that judge, right? You're coming up, you're gonna have a hearing in 15 minutes, and you look at the, and there's your, your opposing numbers right there. $1,000, $1,000, $1,000, $1,000 on the other side. What kind of a message does that send to the other, to the, to the other firms? Uh, how does it feel to be a lawyer who has a very unpopular position? Maybe you're from a large corporation, you're in San Francisco, you're trying to get the court to take a position which is uh, grim and unpopular. You believe you have got a legal reason uh, to go for that particular position, but it's two weeks before the election. And now you're walking in to make your pitch and you're facing somebody who would like to win the next election. How does that feel? Forget the fact, as I believe, that the judges are gonna be uh, neutral, they're gonna do their best uh, to get the law right and 99.9% .9 of the time it's gonna be okay, but how does it make the lawyers feel as they see these list of uh, contributors? Let me read you an email from a colleague uh, who I will not otherwise identify um, and who was at some point uh, involved in a campaign such as ours. Just took the bench in my second jury trial since returning from the election and disclosed that Mr. XYZ and his uh, firm members had donated to the campaign. I could see the opposing counsel and party immediately cringe. They are conferring on whether I should continue on the case. So that's a, just a little summary of some of the things that are implicated when judges are facing these sorts of uh, elections. It worked out fine for us, but um, it was a pretty grim situation in terms of how the system works. Have you ever been asked to, you know, to step down because of contributions by one side or the other? Or have you ever felt somewhat compromised? Well, it is required that we, you know, whether you, whether you want to or not, you actually have to go through this list of contributors mm -hmm. because you have to make your own independent decision whether there's so much money coming from, a, for example, a particular law firm that would look really bad if you, if you mm -hmm. took those things. So even though I didn't want to look at any of these any of these things, and it was actually my wife who went through this list and sent out thank you notes. I, I didn't have anything to do with that, mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just because I was lazy, but um, <laughs> or I was otherwise occupied. Um, but I had to go through this list to figure to figure this out. Mm -hmm. uh, as it turned out, no. I think we were fortunate in this particular election to get money from just this wide swath of lawyers: the plaintiffs bar, the defense bar, the pro this, the anti that. Uh, the criminal defense bar, the prosecution. We got money from, from, across, from across the field. And so it, in that sense, it's sort of all evened out. And I don't think anybody could sort of look at this list and feel that, you know, they were on the wrong side or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it could be otherwise. It really could be otherwise. And finally, I should mention that although we didn't have uh, a lot of outside money coming into this election, under the Citizens United case, of course, it is perfectly legal I'm not rendering a legal opinion here, but uh, it is conceivable that enormous amounts of outside money could come in to influence local elections. And although that's much more of an issue at the Supreme Court level, and it's been decisive in some Supreme Courts around the state, uh, the nevertheless, it has occurred in local DA elections in the Bay Area where substantial amounts of money, sometimes dark money, comes in to influence these elections. And that's the thing. Once you put the judiciary into this box 
of being uh, a political election, then all the other concomitants of politics all fall into place as well. Mm -hmm. The money, the reporting, the disclosure issues, um, and so on and so, so forth. So we'll follow. come back to more on elections in just a moment, but I want to get to social media for a bit. Um, Mara Dolan, the power of social media in judicial recalls, contested elections, retention elections, I think cannot be overstated. Social media, it's fast, it's real time, and according to Politico, and I quote, it favors the bitty over the meaty, the cutting over the considered. It also prizes emotionalism over reason. The more visceral the message, the more quickly it circulates, and the longer it holds the darting public eye. So when a judge's decision-making history gets distorted on Twitter, or Facebook, can anything be done? I mean, unlike newspapers, there's no editing process to ensure that stories are factually accurate. Is there any way to rein in social media when falsehoods about judges are circulating? How do judges who believe they're unfairly attacked on social media fight back if they can't speak out? I mean, to me, it sounds like mission impossible, is it? I think it's mission impossible, yes. I think you can always have a court spokesperson tweet something with a link to the decision or tweet legitimate media how they portray the decision. But it's, it's a battlefield in Twitter. And it's filled with um, untruths. We had, we had a situation where we would talk to our consultants. Some crazy story would come out about one of the four of us. And there was always this issue, are we going to respond and then give it more life and engage in some sort of Twitter battle? Um, or are we going to leave it alone and hope it goes away? Impossible. To and even if there is a response, the assumption is that people will believe the response rather than the falsehood. Right. And the assumption of the First Amendment is that the best response to speech is more speech. But there's a huge assumption there that more speech will ultimately be persuasive. And when false things are said, they're embedded in people's minds and they have an enormous effect no matter what the follow-up speech. It doesn't feel good. So I want to get to some of our audience questions, which um, are very, very interesting. There's one here that is, I'm going to incorporate into a question I had for you all. Um, so we've just talked about judicial elections. We talked about money. And I want to give an example. In Wisconsin, a 2018 election for an open seat on the state Supreme Court was so bitterly contested that voters were barraged with more than $2.6 million in television and radio ads. And most of the money was spent by partisan outside groups. California judicial races, just as costly. So uh, if judges accept campaign contributions, I don't see how they can remain independent. Uh, but yet judges are not politicians. We're not supposed to make promises um, about how we're going to rule. But elections, it seems, transform judges into politicians. But on the other hand, and this brings in questions, and there are a couple of them from the audience, if not elections, what are the best checks on judges, on improper judicial behavior? If you believe a judge is an outlier, even though the decision is a lawful one, but maybe just way out there, what do we have? What can be done other than judicial elections to hold judges accountable? Can I draw a distinction between disliking a particular decision and somebody who's sure. not competent or honest on the bench? Sure. So because you have, those are very sure. different things. Right. The remedy for a decision that you don't like is to appeal that decision. 
If the trial court judge has handed down a decision that somebody thinks is wrong, that's what a court of appeals exists for. And if a court of appeal makes a decision that people think is wrong, that's what the higher court is from. But that's not, I think, what we call a remove from office be. But if a judge is not competent or a judge is not honest, then the judge should be removed from office. But I think the mechanism should be a judicial disciplinary commission, not voters, not through the ballot box. Interesting. Well, let me, let me just throw out, we just got another question here. The bench is overwhelmingly white and, and they have privileged and appointed by the governor. Isn't elections, isn't that a better and a healthier alternative to having judges appointed? Well, one little interesting fact, and judges who get in trouble are most, the majority of them are ones who've run for election and were not appointed and not vetted through a governor's office. Mm. And there was one in L.A. I, if you wrote on your description, uh, uh, prosecutor of gang violence, prosecute, murder, you were much more likely to get votes if you had a really strong law and order label. And the courts of appeal, people with ethnic names, they're running for retention, so they're, there's nobody else on the ballot, but they got lower votes. Justice Arabian, former Republican, right. uh, they did his, he was Armenian, but they thought Arabian that maybe he was Arab. He got fewer votes. Uh, it, it happened at the California Supreme Court. Uh, Justice, Chief Justice Ron George and Justice Ming Chin during confirmation battles said they, not battles, confirmation hearings said they were pro-choice. The anti-abortion lobby targeted them. They both voted to overturn a state law that required parental consent for abortion for minors, and they had to mount campaigns as a result of that. And of course, Otto Kaus did say that. It's the crocodile in the bathtub. There's no way you're not going to think about it. And just having to mount a campaign, as you did, requires so much time and expense and you know, takes away from everything else you have to do. I, I, let me address the, the issue of diversity, which is, I think, something that you were talking about in one of your questions. Um, and here I think that this is why it's so critical to distinguish how judges get their jobs from how judges can lose their jobs. And the problem with the California system, with the election that I had to go through in 2018, is that those two things were conflated. At the very same moment, we had challengers who wanted to get the job, and we had incumbents who were trying to keep their job in exactly the same election. So our challengers legitimately said, hey, we have a right to run. We want to do this. We want to have the job. You can't stop us from doing this. And we felt, and, and by the way, the challenger would say, and politics is sort of part of the deal, no matter how you get on the bench. And we as incumbents were saying, but you can't remove us for political reasons, right? You wouldn't want to remove us for partisan reasons. And we were both right. In California, there are a number of judges, some of the best judges in the state, never would have been appointed by the governor. In the 20th century, we had, a, we had uh, out gay and lesbian judges. We had people who were from the defense bar, criminal defense bar, who never would have become judges in California, but for the fact that they were able to run for open seats. And to, get, and to get elected. So the role of elections in California in terms of getting the job is really quite important. And it is a way to have people from diverse backgrounds and particularly backgrounds that are not being endorsed by the current uh, governor, whoever he or she might be, get onto the bench. 
But the problem is, is when you are running against an incumbent on political grounds. And that's really where the problem arises. But we do have ways in which people who want to get on the bench but are not favored by whoever is in Sacramento at the time uh, can get it done. As I say, we have three open seats that will be decided in March. I mean, I, I can also speak you know, to both. I was both both appointed and then I ran for election. So I was appointed initially by Governor Jerry Brown uh, to the bench, and that was back in the early 1980s. Um, and then when I wanted to move up, because back then there was a municipal court, which was a trial court, and a superior court. Now they are consolidated, so it's just a superior court. But back then I wanted to move up, but there was then a governor who was very conservative, uh, Republican, and who was never going to appoint me. Uh, so there happened to be an open seat, and I then had the opportunity to run and then won that election and then therefore was able to remain on the Superior Court. So there's something to be said for that about bringing more diversity if you can't get it through appointment. Uh, the problem becomes what do you do with judges whom you just don't like a decision, and that's what happened in the recall here, that a judge made, should recall be the way to go? And that brings up some more questions we have on, on recall. Um, uh, there's, I'm going to just throw both out. Uh, under what circumstances should a judge be recalled, if any? And the other is recalls and judicial elections are part of our Constitution. Is there an appropriate use of them that's not at, all, at odds with judicial independence? Incompetence or dishonesty? If it could be shown that a judge was not competent on the bench, and we can certainly de develop and agree to criteria for assessing competence, or dishonesty, taking bribes or the like, then I think the judge should be recalled. The fact that the mechanism exists in the Constitution doesn't tell us when to use it. And I think it should be used only for those situations. Yeah, there are three states that... Permit, that permit judicial recalls, not all states do, but do not allow judges to be recalled because of discretionary decisions they have made that are lawful. It can never be a basis for a recall. And that's something I think perhaps we might want to consider in California. So here's a question. Uh, do groups like the Federalist Society compromise judicial independence? Are they the new crocodile in the bathtub? Um, so... You, uh, Dean Chemerinsky, you might explain, what's the Federalist Society, and then do they compromise judicial independence? The Federalist Society is a very conservative organization of law professors and lawyers. It is very influential with the Trump administration in terms of identifying people to be picked for federal district court, especially federal court of appeals judgeships, and also Supreme Court justiceships. I think that it's completely appropriate for an organization to identify who they think would be desirable for the bench and to suggest them to the president. I think, unfortunately, the right is much better at this than the left. There isn't an analog organization to the Federalist Society among liberals. But I don't think it's a compromise of judicial independence in the same way that we're talking about it now. It's an organization that tries to identify those who have the ideology that they want to see on the federal bench. So another question, isn't the real threat or the underlying threat to judicial independence the judge's desire to stay a judge and not the voter's desire to remove a judge? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Um, 
I, obviously, obvious, it should be obvious that judges, people who become judges, um, some of them have made certain sorts of sacrifices. They wanted to do it. Uh, most of us have wanted to do it since maybe we were two or three years old. Um, and so this is clearly true that people who are on the bench, it's something that they've affirmatively uh, wanted to do, and they've spent an enormous amount of time uh, preparing for it and going through uh, the procedures to, to get the job. Um, but I think it, certainly in California, where we have a very powerful commission on judicial performance, the so-called CJP, uh, which we're acutely aware of the fact uh, is looking at all of our decisions, at least if they're complained about. Um, Aaron Persky's decision, for example, went to the CJP as a complaint that, that he had done something that was uh, worthy of him being disciplined uh, by that commission. The commission in California is very powerful. Uh, most of the people on the commission are not judges. They're lay people. And uh, they look at complaints and they decide, for example, uh, if a judge has been uh, acted illegally or inappropriately in the way that Dean Chemerovsky has talked about. So these grounds that I think most of us would agree are suitable grounds for removal, for example, at a recall or something like that, are actually grounds that the CJP will use to remove judges, or maybe to discipline them if it's not so serious, but when it is serious, to actually remove them from the bench. And about once every year or two, a judge is removed from the bench by the CJP for exactly the sorts of reasons uh, that have been alluded to. And we're sensitive to that, to put well, it that I, I do want to add, though, that the Commission on Judicial Performance recently came under scrutiny and it was subjected to an audit because the sense of members of the public was that there was not enough transparency in, in, in that. So I don't know what has been the outcome of that, but um, work needs to be done. I also so tell you that just generally across the country, um, there are judiciary... Uh, disciplinary bodies in every state for state court judges. But generally, of all complaints that get filed with these agencies, uh, the discipline rate is only between uh, 2 and 5%. So 2, and five, two to 5% of complaints that are filed uh, are judges' discipline. Now, does that mean that most of those complaints are, have no merit, or does it mean that these, these disciplinary bodies are not doing their jobs. I don't know, but it's something that, you know, I don't think we should take for granted. And, and uh, as consumers, as members of the public, and as judges, I think it's important that these disciplinary bodies of judges be as transparent as possible so we know what's going on. There's an annual report that the CJP puts out. It's available on the web. You can Google it, and you could read their annual report and see exactly what they're doing with respect to these complaints, how many complaints were of this nature or that nature, and what the dispositions were and what the facts are uh, with respect to the discipline that they did that issue. So they're making an effort for transparency, but it is something to keep your eye on. So here's another question. Should voters... Why shouldn't voters be weigh in uh, with respect to elections when they disagree with a judge's sentencing? Why not? This goes to what I said earlier. We, I want judges to give the sentence that they believe is appropriate based on the facts of that case and the law. And I don't want the judge to look at anything else other than the facts and the law. And once judges know that voters are going to be evaluating them based on their sentence... Judges are going to hand down sentences to please the voters. They're not going to be of sentences just based on the facts and the law. And to me, then, we've lost judicial independence. And if it's my son who's been accused of sexual assault, God forbid, or my daughter who's a victim of sexual assault, God forbid, 
I want a judge there who's going to do justice and follow the law, not a judge who's going to please the voters at the next election. I think one of the assumptions of this question and a lot of questions, there's an underlying assumption, which is that unless you have judges who are immediately responsible to or accountable to the, the next group of voters, the people who are going to be voting in, in the next election, then you don't have judicial accountability. You don't have a situation in which the judge is really acceding to the will of the people. And that assumption is false. Judges are responsible to the people in the same way that a lot of other elected officials, for example, are responsible to the people in the following way. We have you know, House of Representatives every two years. We've got the Senate every six years, the president in the middle every four years. And what judges do is they look at the will of the people as embodied in its most thoughtful, reflective, considered form. And they follow it because that form is the law. That's the law, as enacted by the people, is the most considered, thoughtful reflection of the will of the people, and the oath that judges take is to follow that. And so judges are clearly accountable to, uh, to the people in, the way, in, that, in that sense. That's the oath that we take. So this notion that we're not otherwise accountable, I think, is a, is a mistake. Well, but still, and I, I don't disagree with you, but I, I get back to our our media person, our newspaper mm-hmm. person, and I'm I'm still concerned that the biggest obstacle judges who believe they are doing their jobs have to face is social media. Uh, so if someone goes to court, goes to family court, doesn't like the decision a judge made in a custody case, and yeah, gets, how many followers do they have? I and mean, gets hot about it and starts putting it out. I mean, what what is it that judges? Uh, should do, can do, ought do. I don't think they can do a lot about social media. I mean, they could have, we talked about this before, have a court spokesperson put something out. There was this instance in Contra Costa County where a group of people, and they are big on social media, um, were upset by these family law judges dealing with dependency issues, taking their kids away. And they tried to recall these judges and they didn't get enough votes. And they tried, they went, they I think they didn't get suit. enough signatures. Excuse me, excuse me, signatures. And they also I, filed a variety of lawsuits too against these judges and attorneys. And I think the lawsuits were thrown out. But as a reporter, I obviously cover both sides. And I can tell you, I cover a group that has been trying to get executions uh, to resume in California. They love state elected judges. Uh, They are so in favor of the system we have in the state and will say to me, we were able to get rid of Rose Bird, but we couldn't get rid of Stephen Reinhardt on the Ninth Circuit. So, I mean, they're there are supporters of this, and they want their voice heard. And there have been many studies done that compare the voting behavior of judges who are elected or face election versus those in states that don't. And the reversal, the affirmance of death sentences or the, upholding the death penalty is so much greater in states where the judges are going to face some form of electoral review. And there's much more reversal of death sentences for judges who don't face electoral review. And to me, that's enormously troubling. When you're talking about the ultimate punishment, death, the idea that a judge is going to be influenced, consciously or unconsciously, by wanting to please the voters at the next election. Right. And remember, Rose Bird and the two colleagues were thrown out in retention election on a campaign based on the death penalty. 
And after they were thrown out, of course, Duke Majin uh, named their replacements, but the court went the opposite way, had one of the highest rates in the country of affirming death sentences, like 95%, really high. We, on that note, uh, we've come to uh, the end of our program, and I've got one final question that I'm going to give to each of our panelists, and it is this. The judiciary is not just another political branch, and to treat it as such threatens the underpinning of our democracy, yet lawmakers in at least six, excuse me, 16 states are considering 51 bills that will diminish or politicize the rule of the judiciary. Some of these bills slash funding to the courts, shorten judicial term lengths, or eliminate judicial seats. In Missouri, a proposed amendment would let voters decide whether a federal law is constitutional. If voters say no, state court judges will be barred from enforcing that law. In 2010, as previously mentioned, three justices of the Iowa Supreme Court lost their retention elections one year after they voted to legalize same-sex marriage. Now, despite this bad news, for judicial independence, let's conclude this forum on a positive note. So I ask each of you to give us one suggestion, a reform, an idea to ensure that our state courts remain independent pillars of our democracy. And I'm going to start off with my recommendation. To maintain judicial independence, judges who follow the law can never be the targets of recalls. I believe that judicial recall petitions must state specific grounds such as malfeasance, misconduct, failure to perform duties of the office, or conviction of a serious crime while in office. That's my idea, my proposal. I'll start with Judge Carno, and then we'll go to uh, Mara Dolan, and then to the dean. Well, in brief, uh, I think we should go back to 1934. Um, the, uh, the way the, the Supreme Court and the appellate courts are selected and are retained uh, should also apply to trial judges. Uh, you know, in, if you're really serious about judicial independence, you would have lifetime appointments. I don't think that would work in California. Our history of how we do things and how long we've uh, sort of been a populist state, uh, I think would really, not, that, that would not work. So that's my suggestion. I have one other thing I can't resist by saying quickly go ahead. One, one other issue, which is that the courts also have a role here. Um, part of the problem that we've been talking about is the function of the fact that a lot of people don't understand what judges do. They don't understand the court system. They don't have a sense of what, what it is. And the courts have a responsibility here to write their opinions and their orders in plain English and to try to bridge this gap between legal lingo on the one hand and the way people talk on the other hand. That's a subject for perhaps another evening, but there is something judges can do too. Thank you. Laura. Uh, I think the media obviously plays a role in covering the courts well, and I think judges should talk to us. Uh, You know, they're more likely to talk to us. The higher they up, the California Supreme Court or Court of Appeal justices, trial courts are often wary, but they're, they're public servants, and I think they should, you know, be open. Uh, I think we can do something to educate people through public opinion pages, through editorials. 
And I also think that the idea of just doing retention elections at the trial judge stage, I think that's a good idea. Dean Chemerinsky. I would eliminate judicial elections. Judges shouldn't be politicians. And if judges have to be elected, then inevitably they're made into politicians. I agree with you, it's unlikely to happen, but you asked what would be the reform I would want. If I can't have that, I'd want the Supreme Court of the United States to allow very strict contribution and expenditure limits with regard to judicial elections. Not long ago, a judge in another state said the judges sit in the judge's lunchroom and talk about which law firms give the most money to judicial campaigns, and then she has to go out and sit on the bench and hear from those law firms. I think we should have special rules of campaign finance for judicial elections if there have to be judicial elections. Got it. Our thanks to Dean Erwin Chemerinsky of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law, to Mara Dolan, legal affairs reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and Judge Curtis Carno of the Superior Court of California. We also thank our audience in person and online as well as on the radio. This program has been held in partnership with the California Judges Association, the Judicial Fairness Coalition, the Litigation Section of the Bar Association of San Francisco, the Bench Bar Committee, and the San Francisco Chapter of the American Board of Trial Advocates. I'm retired Judge Ladaris Cordell, and now this program of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you all. (laughs) 